Let's get this party started, right? Let's get this party started quickly. Hey guys, welcome to the PC Perspective Podcast. This is episode 532, being recorded on February 13, 2019. I am Sebastian Peake. I am Jeremy Hellstrom. I'm Josh Walrath. And I'm Jim Tannis. So how was everybody's week? It was really busy, but yeah. not with like PC per stuff. It's just like life is extremely busy and my regular job is busy and yeah. our tape backups are not working. Friday. Yeah, it's bad. Your tapes are dead. Uh, our way to record tapes just kind of died because of some strange unknown reasons and so on. It being a Dell Power Vault? Yes, it is. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I used to replace ours at least three times a year. Sometimes the power supply, sometimes the carriage, but always something. I like the enterprise, like the inside baseball enterprise talk. Be uh, glad you're not part of it. Yeah, I know. It's not a good I, team to play for. My very brief career and anything approaching that, and I did used to have to do like a daily, I had to change the tapes every day for our tape backup system, but I was in name only a network admin when I was 18 years old. From like 18 to 20, I did this for the place I worked, and it was like first level help desk kind of support and like rebooting people's computers. And I was a Novell Netware administrator. Ooh, I, okay. I did Novell well, for many help. years. I think it was Netware 4.0. We ran it on yep. Windows 95 workstations that were running Pentium processors. Not even not Pentium 2. It's all no, about it, the Pentiums. I think they might have been MMX, but I'm not sure. A lot of the workstations were like 160 megahertz Pentiums with no RAM. Like Actually, they had 32 megabytes of RAM running Windows 95 on a, a, a 10 megabit network. You know, I got to see the transition from, uh, you know, Novell to... Uh, what OES open enterprise system from Novell? Oh, that, yeah, uh, where they that. they went to they went to you know actually they bought SUSE and yeah. then based everything off of you know their their Linux uh, distro and uh, you know there were some interesting things that Novell did for a long time before Windows and then Microsoft actually started doing it like you oh, know gotcha. shadow copy type you know. Uh, self-user backups and yeah it was it was authentication yeah it was some good stuff and they they kept on the leading edge and they they kept adding all these good features but yeah nobody everybody went to microsoft and novell was was second class citizen so but it's not like novell didn't kind of screw themselves in like the late 90s oh yeah yeah anyway the first time i ever installed linux was uh open what did you call it i never knew how to open pronounce Suze? it sussy susie susa open susa some version of that many or open sues if you want to be kind of dirty oh okay so we had oh i haven't gone all the way around the horn yet uh jeremy how's life in vancouver uh we are apparently all about to die uh we're going to start eating each other. We've had a good 10 centimeters of snow. Uh, call you, it you didn't lose another Stanley Cup final, did you? Hmm? You didn't lose another Stanley Cup final, did you? Oh, no, no. It just it snowed in Vancouver. 
So let me ask you this, Jeremy. When you have a snowstorm or something big like that, do the stores suddenly run out of all the ingredients for French toast? We Namely don't... milk, bread, and eggs. Eggs, yes. We don't seem to have that reaction. We, we go for the dogs, like the one sneaking up behind you. Uh, no, but, but Canada doesn't do that because we've usually got freezers full of stuff. So there's no huge run on canned goods and fresh meat like there was down in Seattle, who got hit by the exact same storm. Now, they were, I'm sure you've seen the pictures of them with, like, empty shelves. No eggs. No, There's no French toast makings anywhere. No. Here, it was just like, yeah, me and three other people made it into the 50-some person office. Everyone else was snowed in. The buses all pulled over en masse and just said, that's it. We're not going anywhere anymore. So you used light rail, right? It's the only thing running right now, and... Thankfully, because no one is going in, it wasn't overcrowded. It was, well, more overcrowded. If you, the SkyTrain is... Yeah, the TransLink was a cattle car company down in uh, South America. And so when we rebranded BC Transit up here, we re, we were honest and we called it TransLink. Just like the cattle car company. <laughs> Jim, is... Uh, you're, you're in Pennsylvania, right? Technically? Or are you in Kentucky? No, I'm in Kentucky. Yeah. I used to live in Pennsylvania about two and a half years ago. Okay. I I there was some connection I forgot. Sorry. Uh I'm just you, thinking about you, like you've been here. You've you've seen where I live. <laughs> I've been to your house? Well, in the neighborhood. Oh, I didn't well, okay. Yeah. I didn't I don't recall going into your house. You didn't you didn't see the big uh, cardboard McMansion? Oh, it's not quite a McMansion. But does it have a cardboard Ryan in it? It does. I live like literally, <laughs> literally a stone's throw from Ryan's house. Why does everybody live in that neighborhood over there? It's like Ryan, Alan. I thought you... so when I moved here, uh, and I called Ryan to let him know I was moving here before I, I would. And at that point, I was just a contributor and a, an acquaintance of his. I moved here because I have family that lives just up the street, so that's why I picked this neighborhood. And so I sent him my address, and he sent back a map saying he said well hi there neighbor and i'm in the same neighborhood just one street over and i felt pretty creepy and uh i I unintentionally creepy i said oh that's hello (laughs) i mean you are the guy with you you are the guy with wd-40 and your desk behind you that's apple electrical contact cleaner Uh yeah Uh and if that doesn't work i put snapple on it yeah you just Uh lubricate extensively yeah gotta make sure that's con- tight connection good electrical yeah. solid connection <clears throat> shall we that's move on tapes for i suppose josh um let, let's go to the reviews we actually had you know what being the voice of reason is very tiring in this group it must be it's not your forte <laughs> this is correct So when the hell did EVGA start making sound cards? This confused me when you put that review up. Yeah, well, it confused me. It didn't really confuse. It, it did confuse me and surprise me when I walked into the suite at CES. We had a meeting with EVGA. You know, we do every year, but they were doing like a product unveil, and we'd seen some like teaser photos. It? What's that? Where was Jacob hiding it? 
Uh, he was around. I mean, he was around, and so was the bucket of red vines, which I always look for. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it. I think Ryan said something about this to me, my first CES. He's like, the red vines never taste better than they do at EVGA. I don't know why. And I thought it was because of this like big Costco giant container of them that he always had. They're very fresh. They are fresh. Interesting that you mention, or that I mention it, because I happen to have... A bag of red vines right here. Do they feel fresh? They do. Or and do they new, need to... Uh... I think it's new packaging. Because it says now resealable. And it's like pulled open like like Oreos are now. Ooh, just like underwear. And they feel they feel softer in this package. So I will try this out later. But EVGA had a sound card. And the, the first thing I thought is, okay, EVGA gaming, like video cards, motherboards, power supplies, they got into cases, they have laptops. It's going to be all RGB, right? With right, it's going to be all RGB, and it's going to be like 7.1 channel, like surround sound, like all these DSP-driven effects and all this kind of stuff. And it is not. Like, it is, at its heart, just a a dual, like, two-channel sound card. It's It's trying to be a uh, like a solution for high quality two channel sound listening to high res music kind of replacing the need to have dedicated external devices because i think a lot of people who are really into high end audio does, does that take a banana cable a banana cable oh no there's no there's no uh, speaker outputs on this josh what's that big thing in the middle headphone jack Oh, the big headphone jack, not the three and what three three point five millimeter, but the big, big one. The big, big one with the black around it is the quarter inch headphone jack. Yeah, y- yeah. Okay, and there's also a toss link out. Like you can you can pass digital sound out of this if you wanted to send sound to like your home theater receiver. Like if you're using this as an HTPC and you wanted to do 5.1 surround out. But Toslink, I mean, anybody who's into this probably knows, like, that's very limited. Like, the optical uh, coaxial is a better connection if you want to do higher bitrate sound, because you're you're limited to, like, Dolby Digital, and I, I'm pretty sure you cannot do uncompressed multi-channel sound. You can do, like, uncompressed linear PCM stereo, or 2.1 channel, but I don't think you can do 5.1 uncompressed on optical. You, Well, it's got to be encoded, but yeah, it can, yeah. but it not ends up being like, like the, the old DVD standard was like 640 kbps per channel, which is fine. It's like double, like the highest quality MP3. But no, you're not doing like uncompressed multi-channel pass-through over optical. Uh, actually, yeah, I don't know. I see in the chat asking what format the... Uh, optical supports i believe it's just whatever the stream is it's just a, a straight pass through but i'll have to test that i don't i have not tried that yet i was focused just on the analog output out of this thing and the sound from this is fantastic and i've i've used a bunch of different sound cards i i've been using an external card from creative it's one of their x5 hd like usb cards and i specifically bought it to do um recording i was going to digitize some of the few like actually all analog records that i have and make like high-res versions of them and the uh analog to digital converter in that creative card is actually pretty good but one of the the reasons i chose that over something else was because i thought it had dual oscillators it would have like 
clock generators for both 44.1 and 48 kilohertz derived like uh, sample rates. And it physically does on the board, but it's not enabled in software. It's it's maddening. So I've seen a few of them. I know Asus makes at least like their their current high-end audio cards have dual oscillators. At least one of them does. And this one does. So that was one of the things. I was asking all these questions because this is like right up my alley when I was at EVGA. I'm like the engineer from Audio Note, the UK like uh, audiophile hi-fi component company that helped design this was there. And basically, the breakdown I got was that this is pretty much a USB 3.0 card. It's it's bridge to PCI Express. There's an uh, AS Media bridge chip in here. And it's essentially a high-end external sound card for PCI Express. So it's it's kind of interesting. I asked them about an external version and they were, you know, basically this is our first effort. You know, that's absolutely something that we can look, you know, that we can do with this design. But essentially, if you actually look at the product page and you look at the breakdown of the components and I took it apart and you can see the pictures in the review, uh, they're using very high quality components throughout Excuse me. <clears throat> uh, I wish I could help a brother out, but this is your ears. Well, right. Yeah. I mean, we can talk about the the component choices and stuff and like why some of this stuff might matter. Essentially, I can give you my my breakdown was very, very, very clear, like dead silent background, extremely big dynamic range. Uh the channel separation was outstanding. And there are terms thrown around in like audio file circles. And if, but you, read, if you, you go up there, that, I mean, the amount of filtering that you see in terms of, of, you know, the resistors you've got there and just the components and huge caps and you that little copper thing that separates. Do you see what I mean? The big yeah, uh, the S thing are shielded from. Yeah. Like the, the actual DSP and the clock that's, oscillators. And that's stuff, ludicrous. But. I mean, it, it, go ahead. When I when you look at this, like I've looked under the hood at, at certain smaller hi-fi components. This is far and away better than I. I tore down an iFi. They have iFi is a company that makes these little like aluminum external boxes that plug in via USB, and I had one of their IDSD boxes, and it was a way to. It's like an external sound card. It does the same thing that this does, except it just had like RCA out and a eighth inch headphone jack. And internally was not anywhere near the level of sophistication we have here or the attention to detail, the shielding, the the types of capacitors and resistors that were used, everything else. And that's that's like a $200 product. They have a cheaper version that's $129 or $139. So when you look at pricing, which was one of the, the like the, it's going to be the biggest barrier to entry for this card. I can tell you it sounds fantastic. I can tell you that because the channel separation and the signal to noise ratio and the dynamic range being so good, when you plug in a pair of headphones or you hook this up to an amplifier, a good amplifier, uh, an easier test is still going to be headphones. What you're immediately going to hear is something that is referred to in audio circles as sound staging. You're going to hear a very wide sound stage. And when you have distinct, balanced, like very good separation between left and right channels. What you end up getting is 
kind of like this three-dimensional effect where when you're listening to really well-recorded and mastered music, you can start to place where the different instruments or performers are coming from. And it depends on the kind of music you're listening to. You're not going to play, you know. And a, if it's well-recorded, you'll actually get some vertical changes. Yeah, it's like you'll start to hear things like in live music, you'll start to hear like the sound bouncing off the back of you know the stage or if they're in a big studio you'll hear the sound bounce off the walls of the studio just it it has enough clarity that i was hearing that better than the thing that i usually use to listen to audio on the computer which i was a thousand dollar digital audio player with like a high-end class a amplifier built in for the headphones and the, one of the other terms that i try to i don't use any of these audiophile terms in this review but when you talk about a veiled sound, like if you think about you have a speaker, you put like a, a sheet over the speaker or a blanket over the speaker and listen to it, and you take the blanket off, it's the same sound. It's a little bit louder. Yeah, but, but do do you taste cooler. leather or or do you do you do you smell sandalwood when you're listening to this audio? It was it was more of a uh, bergamot. <laughs> bergamot root. <laughs> I smelled Earl Grey tea when I was listening to music with this. Yeah. Anyway, synesthesia um, is is not to be overrated in in audio products. So enjoy while you can before the people in the white lab coats take you away. Josh, have you had much experience, or have you heard anything from AKM, the the company? You know, it used to be that you oh, opened up a long like time. A, what's that? Not in a long time. Like. I feel like it wasn't that long ago that everything was like either a Burr Brown DAC, which I think TI yeah. had, yeah, with them, or like we see a these lot. Don't of, have, these don't have these don't have swappable op amps, do they? It's all yeah. soldered in, right? Well, it's yeah. just swappable op amps for the. Oh line wow! You know, I I remember what about ten years ago. Um, who was it? Oh. It was that Korean sound card company that they were one of the first to offer swappable op amps on their mm-hmm. on their sound cards in in, in uh, analog, and you know it made a big difference because the stuff was just you know it wasn't anything great, but then I I got some Burr Brown op amps and it just kind of warmed it up a little bit. So it's it's neat that they have the ability to be able to swap in op amps because you know it's it's a two channel solution so it's not like you got to replace four or five op amps which you know are three bucks a piece for high-end stuff four dollars maybe i remember when gigabyte did that for a bit on their motherboards it went away but uh some of the ones from that very memorable ces we had to go and Hmm. visit the gigabyte Go I. Go I. Uh, I'll Sorry just address a couple of train of thought, yeah. Sebastian. Well, I, I was going to address a couple of things I'm looking at in the chat here where one of them, well, first of all, yes, the, the, because this is PCIe bridged, it's actually a USB device. The power that it's using is just coming from the SATA port in the back. So you actually do have to use like a SATA connector to provide power for this thing. Um, the... One question about how this compared to shit audio products, because I have used their, they have a Magni and a Modi, I think are the two, I cannot remember the names, but there are two $100 components you could put together to do the same thing that this does. 
uh, I do not believe their $100 DAC has the ability to do native DSD. If you care about that, uh, most uh, things in that price range under $200, you're just doing like linear PCM stuff, which is fine. But the their headphone amplifier, which I think is on, it's either third or fourth generation now. When I had it, it was like second generation. And it was okay. I ended up selling it because depending on the headphones, like it, everything changes based on the load. But I thought it sounded a little grainy when it was turned up louder, if that makes any sense. Grainy being like, I don't know if I was actually hearing something, but the harder I drove it to turn up my headphones, the more it sounded like a little brittle or something. It's And it maybe it was just me. But I thought the output from this comparing it just to the thing I use every day, which is my little digital audio player from a company called Calyx Audio in Korea. That's I think discontinued by now. The Calyx M. Calyx M almost gives everything a little bit of a smile EQ where it's a little bit warmer. There's less mid-range and it's like a smooth kind of rolled off top end. So it, it pairs nicely with things like Grado headphones that have a little bit of an exaggerated mid-range and a little bit higher top end. So it kind of smooths them out. And then headphones like these Audio Technicas behind me, they kind of do the same thing. So it ends up being very smooth. So you, it's not as balanced. Like when I was using those with the new audio thing, it was a lot clearer. But there, there just seems to be a lot of, it's a very flat frequency response. And it's way overkill for 38 ohm headphones like this. So anyway, check out the review. You can look at the the close-up photos look at some of the components and stuff it's it's an interesting product what, it what's varies. the price on that 250 dollars. do you think it's worth it it's very hard to come to terms with 250 dollars. i mean it sounds as good as 200 dollars worth of external components the price is is 199 if you're an evga elite member i have to think the price on this will come down i i thought it was a little odd that they were offering it for 199 for their elite members and 249 to the public when this is their first audio product. I think if if you're introducing something in a completely new arena to the public that you would want to price it a little bit more aggressively, maybe gain some market share, some mind share. Because at this price, it's just this sort of elite audio card that is far more expensive. If you look on Amazon right now at sound cards, you know, you go up to a hundred, maybe $150. Like this is in a different stratosphere and pricing. So it's, I think it's expensive. I, I have a hard time reconciling myself to the price. I think it's a more compelling product at $200, but it, it requires you to be like really into two channel audio. So you have to have really good headphones. You have to have a good, it's wasted to do this with like, to use this card with cheap headphones or a cheap amplifier in your desk. What is the, because uh, the only other high-end sound card I've ever bought was an Asus uh, Zonar X, or it was probably about eight years ago, and it was their top-of-the-line card back then. And I remember I paid almost $300 for it. Is is there, and I think they still have it, if it's not that one, they have something in that family still on the market. What did, Do anybody know off the top of their head what's what the price range of that is? Because I I thought for sure it was it was well over $200. I know they have some stuff that includes like an external control. Yeah, because I've I've had a couple of Asus Zonars and they've gone anywhere from sixty bucks up to about two hundred and ten. The two hundred and ten one, 
uh, was probably one of the first HDMI audio that utilized the, uh, gosh, it was the 8832, I can't remember, uh, as the C-Media chip that they then kind of bought and rebranded the as media 100 or am 100 the details escape me but you know they were good cards but the uh the big thing that they did is uh they they were able to encode digital audio at uh you know dts type specifications and so you got multi-channel surround and it was aimed at gaming and they had all kinds of gaming stuff and it was still really solid uh, hardware for 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 basic audio stuff as well but you know, it was it was kind of the the niche for it. It it um, you know it was, it was more of a a successor to the high end creative sound cards rather than you know really going for audiophile guys. Yeah, and they have those in their line. The one I'm thinking of, I found here, it's the Asus Essence STX2. And again, I don't know if it was this specific mm-hmm. model, but this was in that that family i had and it's a high-end stereo card replaceable op amps uh you know really good signal to noise uh ratio and it's priced right now msrp at 259.99 so it's again i don't know how big that market is and how many people evj is going to be able to capture who would otherwise be shopping at that price but hey i've got to ask you this this um sebastian did you ever purchase one of those inexpensive NV32 based cards that had the Wolf Wolfsome? Oh, Dax. Do you remember those? That it was it was a Via released that NV uh, chip. I mean, it didn't do anything other than provide really solid audio and then they paired it with some really good dax and um and they sold it for like 50 bucks oh yeah on that i want to say that wolfson dax were in some of the early ipods weren't they or am i thinking of um no i, I think you're right yeah you might yeah. like the eight i mean loves them. but anyway we can talk about sound cards but i ad nauseum let's move on jim Posted a uh, a quick look at an encrypted. I love the look of this thing. An encrypted USB drive that has an actual physical keypad on it. Jim, are you with us? Oh, sorry, I was muted. Uh, so sorry. This is a uh, a flash drive from a company called iStorage, or based out of the UK, and the product's called the DataSure Pro, and it's one of uh, many products that they sell, their whole thing is basically encrypted external storage. So they sell external hard drives, like two and a half inch drives, three and a half inch drives, SSDs, and flash drives that have encryption, hardware encryption automatically built in, uh, mostly with a keypad, just like as you see here with this one. So it's it's a big uh, flash drive. Most of the modern ones without encryption are, or without, without hardware encryption are smaller. This is a more traditional size. And it's got this uh, nine or 10 digit uh, keypad on the front. And the whole trick is that it automatically encrypts uh, once you disconnect it from the computer and will not engage at all unless you decrypt it or unlock it using the keypad uh, first. And what the, what the company is trying to address here is data encryption is slowly getting better. The 
notion that we need to protect our data is slowly gaining traction. So we're protecting our data at home. We're using encrypted cloud storage, but there's this huge gap or this huge vulnerability where the, uh, you know, somebody in marketing or in, uh, in recruitment at a company gets a bunch of W2 forms, puts them on a floppy drive, and they're going to take them to HR. And they leave it at a coffee shop or their bag gets stolen at the airport or something. And they're just unencrypted on that drive. Now, you can encrypt. You can use software encryption to encrypt files to any storage medium. But people don't think about that. It also leads to a situation where you've encrypted something. Let's say you want to take some documents to a photo printer and you want to encrypt them just in case. Your photo printers you know, at the CVS isn't going to be able to decrypt those files. And so using something like this, you get automatic protection without having to think about it. And once you've unlocked it through the buttons on the device, it presents itself as a completely unencrypted device to whatever you plug into. There's no software you have to run. There's no passwords you have to enter on the computer as long as you remember your PIN. Uh, so it's it's a nice solution in that uh, regard. There are some downsides, though. It's pricey, first of all. Um, this is like $125 for a 32-gig capacity, so significantly more expensive than non-encrypted counterparts. Uh, it's big, so it kind of sticks out of the port. And if, you know, a lot of laptops or desktops, you know, it's going to be sticking out there and there's a good chance you can kind of hit it and cause some tension that could damage the the port or the drive. It's also, those buttons are small. I mean, this it's a big flash drive, but it's still a flash drive, so it's still pretty small and you're cramming a lot of buttons on there. And the way it works to unlock it is you hit the key button you have to enter your PIN, which has to be a minimum of seven digits. It can be seven to 15 digits. And then you have to hit the key button again to unlock it. So you've got to press a minimum of nine buttons within 10 seconds. And that can be tricky, especially for like, let's say you want to get a product like this for your CFO or again, your, your HR uh, uh, leader. Mm-hmm. They're generally not, you know, they might be older, they might be less technically savvy, they might not have the dexterity. If you're disabled in any way and can't use your hands quickly, this is a non-starter. The very polite way of putting it, and it's got to be plugged into a USB port when you do this too, right? Oh, no, that's the thing. So it's got a oh, battery. Oh, God, thank God. Yes, it would be impossible if you have to have a plug. So it does have a battery, and the battery lasts uh, about a month, they say, and, and we didn't have it for long enough to really try it, but it never ran out of battery. But if it does run out of battery, you plug it into any powered USB port, let it charge for a few minutes, and then you can you can take it off and, and do the unlock. When you're plugged in that first time, it obviously won't connect to data, but you'll at least get the power that way. So you don't have to worry about that. And uh, uh, I guess, yeah, that's it. It's, 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 uh, it's expensive. It might be a little tricky to operate, but if you think you can handle it, you know, it's, it's also, it's performance too. It's uh, not a great performer. They say it's, they say it gets up to 139 megabytes a second for reads. We only measured about 40, uh, but it, in general, you're going to be encrypting documents, photos. You're not going to be encrypting huge files. So it's, again, it's probably okay that it's not the fastest thing around. But if you have a need for this, if you're worried about taking your tax forms to the accountant, you don't want to leave them unencrypted. If, if you've got people, if you're in a company environment, you don't trust people to deal with software encryption. It's something to take a look at. It's not the only product out there in the market, uh, but it's uh, it's one of a handful that do this sort of keypad-based, no software-required encryption. And all, all things being equal, it's it's pretty good. You can get them uh, now from Amazon in the, the U.S. Prices range from $60 to $145. So again, not the best price, uh, you're, but you're paying, 
you can't think about it in terms of paying for capacity. You're paying for security. So if it's if it's valuable to you in that context, it's worth taking a look. How does it compare to Iron Key? Haven't haven't used uh, them, so I, mm. I don't know any uh, any firsthand impressions. This is the first style of product like this that I actually ever got a chance to use hands on. So I don't have a better answer. I, I've had I, I I was given an Iron Key for my job three years ago. And uh, yeah, it's it's all kind of software based. You got to install the Iron Key software, and you got to make sure you remember your your code and password. Otherwise, you just reformat the whole damn thing. But uh, yeah, the the price was high, and the performance was low. Yeah, the perfect combination. Okay, uh, real quick, we'll look at the Pulse Fire Core. This is a HyperX mouse. I took a look at uh, last week. And just to give you the basics, this is kind of, it sits at the $40 price point. This, that's the full MSRP. And if you look at what HyperX already offers, they have a FPS mouse, which is around $30, and an FPS Pro, which is 60 And then their high-end Pulse Fire Surge, which I think is around $69. It has like the 360-degree RGB lighting and the the higher end um, ohm run switches, but the in the Pulse Fire Core, what you're basically getting is like an FPS that's somewhere in between the FPS and the FPS Pro. So it's like maybe like the Pro Junior or an FPS Plus. So if you the optical sensor is a little bit higher uh, end model that goes up to 6200 DPI. Uh, so the max speed is higher. The acceleration is the same. The polling rate's the same. A lot of the, the it's, it's a little bit smaller product though. It's actually much closer to the size of the Surge mouse. So it's a it's a symmetrical design. Uh, I the my biggest takeaways from this were it's very very light. Like it's the the entry level mouse for Corsair. They just you just reviewed this one, Jim. What is their entry level? Um, the, is well, which, so they, harpoon? they, they had har, harpoon, they had the harpoon wired, which they had on the market already. And then they just announced the hyper harpoon wireless. Okay. Uh, but wired, they, they also have the iron claw, uh, as well at the same price point, I think. Okay. The harpoon, I think is around 87 or 85 grams. It's actually lighter than this. This is only 87 grams, which I'm used to a mouse that's around hundred. So this felt extremely light. And it has big pads on the bottom that are very smooth. And it was like, you could like throw this thing off your desk with, you know, as as you're moving around, it's very, very light. If you're okay with that, I actually found that the blend of the sensor that they use with the default um, resolution settings, which they move up in increments of like 400 or 800, you can set it to anything you want in the software. This is one of those mice that is uh, software enabled. Like you go into the software, you can change the little logo to any color you want or turn off the color. You can change what any of the seven buttons are assigned to. You can create macros and save them to the mouse, to any of the buttons. So it's it's very flexible. And the actual performance of the mouse is great. Like the acceleration felt good. Like I could set it to a lower uh sensitivity setting i kept mine at around 2400 dpi i think most of the time and you could still accelerate quickly you had a lot of control if you slowed down 
like it, you were not like jumping around. If I wanted to actually edit a photo with this, for example, I could do that like pixel by pixel. So I thought it was good. I, I thought the build quality was fine. This is one of those things where it's all up to personal preference. Like I was looking like relative to the market. What does this offer? Well, it has one more button than a lot of the other mice in this price range from other like major companies. I was looking at Corsair specifically, but like seven buttons versus six, they're all programmable. You can do macros. You can do macros on the Corsair side too. It's kind of tough to say this is worth $10 more than the Harpoon, but at $39, especially if you find this on sale, it's a solid option. No complaints other than for my own preference, it was a little bit on the uh, lightweight side, as I've said about 75 times, I think so far. So you can check out the review at PCPro.com. And now, Josh, you and me. Me need to talk about AMD Radeon. You and me going to well, talk about AMD. Well, yeah, Jeremy can, and Jim can talk. All about the it. good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about Let's talk about I. fixing a huge list of issues mostly related to the Radeon 7 with this new version of the software. And if you followed Radeon 7 reviews early on, I had one, obviously. And here's the strange thing. And this is this is true. I had none of the issues myself using the same press driver that everybody was given access to before this product was released. I, I saw like uh, Jay's Two Cents and uh, Gamers Nexus, like Steve over there was complaining about like crashing and like crashing the desktop all sorts of issues that got to the point with uh jay that apparently amd had sent him a, a replacement card that uh did not arrive in time for him to finish his review before the embargo but i had none of those issues so i, I wonder if it was just the particular mix of games that i used also the fact that i'm a build behind on windows 10 and i intentionally run all of my tests offline. I have a dedicated GPU test bed that is 100% offline. It's not connected to anything, not on my network at all. And it's running Windows 10 ver, uh, build 1803, not 1809. And I just manually like clean out the previous version of the driver. I use the DDU driver uninstaller thing and then install the newest version of the driver and then I do all my testing. So when the press driver came in, I uninstalled the old AMD driver, put in the new one, installed the Radeon 7, and went from there. Zero issues. However, there have been just tons of issues reported with the original driver for this card. The, the original release driver for this card still had issues. So now with 19.2.2, if you look down the list, you have everything from the issues with, like, inaccurate reporting in, in the software like Wattman, overclocking, temperatures, stability issues. There were problems with X399 boards. I did not test it on X399. So uh, that apparently has been addressed. I imagine it You mean you don't have a Threadripper set up right there? I, I can see one over here. There's actually no memory in it right now. But yes, I mean, I that's something that I am getting into because there, I need to do some CPU testing just in general. I can't imagine I'll go through this whole year without any CPUs to to benchmark. But 
Um, the state of the driver apparently is uh, it's getting better, but the this is kind of like where the release of the driver probably should have been on day one. Although honestly, there's so little availability with this card that by the time people actually get their hands on one, this driver is going to be available anyway. It was released today. What you can actually buy these cards? Uh, last I saw, they did actually have them in stock on Amazon. Hmm. This morning. Really? I know there's one from a third-party seller. I was seeing them for like $1,100. Uh, AMD.com had them in stock yesterday. I tweeted that out. Um, it was on their homepage. If you just went to AMD.com, it was just like, buy now. And you, I clicked on buy now, and it was it took me to like a cart. And it had it in the cart available oh, for shipping. Crap. So... Yeah, this morning it was decent. Now it is $1,200, and there's one. Yeah. So they, they still do seem to be in very limited supply. They've never come out and talked about the actual production numbers. There were rumors that it was only 5,000 pieces total. I think they sold more than that. Yeah, I would hope so. I think it's maybe 10K worldwide. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I mean, it's a still it, a pretty it's good chunk. Crying and laughing, Josh. It, yeah, it's crying and laughing. It's an exclusive club. These Radeon Seven owners. And what's sad, honestly, I think everybody should have got the acrylic stand. Why wasn't that just the retail packaging? How much could retail that actually off? add? What was that, Jeremy? It beats a what was it? A hexagonal box. Yeah, is that what? It, uh, that's the Intel software. Yeah. Uh, the i9s you can roll a 1d 20 or whatever with it come on dnd nerds get you just have to remember the the name want to roll a 1d 20 i mean i guess that's because you're rolling it's all thaco baby it's all thaco i'm sad to say it's not anymore apparently sad all right well and somehow i did not I don't know where I missed this, but I did not post the the news about the UEFI BIOS. Oh issue. no, uh, Scott did, or no, you did. Oh, I did put that in there. Yeah, you did okay. put that in there. I did put it in the rundown. All right, because yeah, compatibility mode is is really important to still support. <sighs> I had I wondered, and then. I can't imagine this would be the reason, but I wondered if maybe it was because Secure Boot was broken with the card that some people were having issues with it. But I imagine it was more of a driver issue. But still, the card, when it was released, was running in like CSM mode. It would force your motherboard to go into that mode. But what I'm wondering is, and I've definitely configured systems that unless you explicitly enabled CSM, like I know uh, Dell OEM systems were like this. If you just had it in like it's out of the box defaults, it probably would not have booted with this card unless you booted it with an alternate card, enabled CSM, and then saved it, and then installed the card. So I wonder if that was causing any of these issues with Windows 10 and actually getting the system to boot properly with the card, but it was tech power up who reported on it initially and they they showed that it was not uafi gop compatible and then amd issued a statement so they reprinted it and they said that it was going to be 
an update was going to be made uh, available available to the added board partners and then was going to be released through amd.com which i thought like, oh, that's nice and they're like well of course they have to because they're also one of the partners because they're selling the card themselves so as soon as that update is available and i don't believe it's available yet not yet then i was gonna go ahead and flash that new bios on this card and hope for the best but uh, other than it uh, i mean a little bit faster the 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 saltpeter lining to the pile of was that it as we were chatting about uh, earlier this week the pro driver is actually going to work with the radeon 7 so a bunch of this stuff because that was the one thing like even in your benchmarking you saw as a workstation card it's actually pretty damn good for the price so by going the opposite way of uh what what, what do we call them nvidia uh that who were specifically blocking any of that professional level stuff uh, from the retail cards, all of a sudden AMD is sort of, you know, possibly by accident, hopefully not, allowing you to get some of the advantage of the Radeon Pro driver on your Radeon 7, which is kind of neat as long as they stick with it. And I hope they, they do. It, it uh, kind of hurts their current professional line of cards, which hasn't really been refreshed yet. It, it's, it it gives you a reason to buy it uh, other than the, the gaming performance that we all know where it sits on the charts. I feel like you're I feel like you're just setting yourself up for more disappointment, Jeremy. Yeah, I think I am. I'm used because to they clarified their stance on the professional drivers. I was reading, I think it was a non-tech who wrote this particular one up that I sourced. They're basically enabling the whole one driver thing so that you have the ability to run the card using the professional drivers. However, the workstation optimizations and certifications and feature set are not enabled when using the Radeon graphics cards, including the Radeon 7. Okay. So you don't gain anything running the pro drivers. You're just able to use the card while running the pro drivers. If for some reason you wanted to switch from your like Frontier Edition or what have you, over to this card, which I think would be an interesting comparison anyway because Frontier Edition was the 16-gigabyte Vega 64 sort of card that actually was released before Vega 64. And so Radeon 7, the counterpart of the MI50 Instinct card. Mm -hmm. So... But unfortunately, you still have to buy the Instinct if you want all of the additional features and optimizations enabled. Fine. So no. I'll it just was... look for a BIOS hack. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how how is it that we're like an hour in now and we thought, oh, this is going to be a short show and we're halfway through. Because we well, talked about sound cards for way too long. We're, we're freaking verbose. Yeah. And saying very little. I know I was saying very little. I was trying to not go in depth, and it, it just, we kept talking. Or I did. I don't know. Sure. Next but, up on the podcast, more drivers. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's driver week at PC Perspective, and we test drove. Actually, I haven't installed these yet. NVIDIA released uh, the GeForce 418.91 driver, and this is important because it coincides with the Battlefield 5 update, which adds DLSS support to the game, 
And we've obviously, I mean, at this point, you've seen, if you read our site or Hard OCP or any of the other sites out there, you've seen coverage of the LSS. You've also seen coverage of Battlefield 5 and race racing with RTX cards. So the, the big performance penalty with Battlefield 5 is it's obvious and makes the game pretty much unplayable at high detail settings at higher resolutions and you you move to dlss and nvidia is claiming up to 40 percent improvement there's early stuff out there there's comparisons out there you can see but it, it does have there's like two parts to dlss and we've talked about this but just for anybody who isn't up to speed essentially what it is is a combination of ai training to have like a penalty-free way to have like a TAA, like temporal anti-aliasing effect, where it, it it like shows it like AA on versus AA off and teaches it to anti-alias the image without actually having to do it in hardware in real time. So you save the performance there. But what really is happening also with the LSS is that it is internally rendering the game at a lower resolution, and then the AI training, the neural network uh, backend, is basically learning how to upscale it at in real time. So uh, we saw the like the white paper on the Port Royal benchmark showed that it's like seventy five percent internal resolution versus output. So like literally. Uh, 2560 by 1440 is internally actually only rendered at 1920 by 1080. So you're getting 1080 performance at 1440 because it's actually only 1080. And then it's upscaled using AI magic, deep learning magic to 1440 when it hits your monitor. So that's... And it's totally not dynamic super resolution. <laughs> no. Because that would do the opposite. It would render way higher <laughs> than downscale. So, yeah. And it's important, too, to... I mean, we've when we saw the initial Port Royal demos with the LSS at, C, at CES, I mean, I was... I think you expressed the same opinion. I was kind of blown away. It, it looked really good. And now that that demo's in the public's hands, in general, it looks very good. But the trick is, as you said, with this being AI-trained, those... Those types of applications, benchmarks, either like that or a benchmark in a game that runs a on a rail, is going to be much easier to adapt and look much better because it's on rails. It's very predictable. The AI can know exactly where each pixel is going to be at any given time. Yeah. Met nice Metro Exodus uh, inference there. Uh, right. Well, and then, of course, with Metro coming out <laughs> and Battlefield 5. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not entirely sure if DLS works that way because it's it's such a per frame thing it's yeah. not like they're thinking four frames ahead five frames ahead it's it's kind of per frame that they do hmm. that kind of work and so um you know the the potential for this is it's not exactly boundless but it's significant i mean if you have a card that runs at 1080p nicely if you can apply dlss to it then you got a 1440p upgrade well in sure. terms of the performance but the thing is though and again maybe you're right too because I, I don't i'm not a technical expert in terms of the inner workings of the gpu but the 
Port Royal benchmark looked much better relative to its DLSS off uh, counterpart than what we've seen thus far in Battlefield and Metro. Uh, or I guess Battlefield just thus far is what I've seen in terms of like raw, like real world gameplay. Because in Battlefield, it doesn't look very good at all. In fact, it looks worse. The DLSS mm. benchmark to me and my to my eyes looked better in Port Royal. It looks worse in the Battlefield stuff I've seen. And the performance benefit is significantly smaller. Uh between that and traditional anti-aliasing. So I don't I don't know. Maybe there is something else going on there. Uh but it, it you know it, you you absolutely could be correct because uh you know we don't know the algorithms behind it all. We don't know how much the uh you know the machine learning is is actually doing in the background and what they're doing at the NVIDIA servers that they're compiling this stuff and getting kind of the the little roadmap on, on how to make crap look better through machine learning. So it's going to be an interesting six to eight months where we see more titles being rolled out with this and uh, get to really compare and contrast screenshots of, you know, full regular non DLSS uh, uh, resolutions versus this stuff. Mm-hmm. So you I could think- be onto something there. Well, I, I mean, think- my, Oh, I'm go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, you, Jim. Uh, my impression, like, the, the, the messaging I've heard from multiple locations is it's going to get better over time. So how exactly that happens, how long it takes, and to what extent it gets better, I guess, is what, is what I'm interested learning. in. Right, of course. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> well, it means that they, it learns. It, it yeah. gets better at making it look better. Yes. You are contributing to Skynet. Congratulations. Probably. But well, it was going to be better. Go ahead. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> hey, you know what? If if they're willing to kill off the vast majority of humanity for me to get better graphics, I'm all for that. What I was going to add is that <laughs> when you actually, you, Josh, you brought up screenshots, like looking at screenshots. That's the problem because in motion, this looks fine. I mean, I will say like. And side by side in motion, Port Royal looked a little bit better with DLSS. And I think that's because of the edge detection, because we weren't seeing an overall softer image. We were seeing an image that still had the sharp edges to the objects on the screen. And so side by side, the thought was, oh, it's sharper. It looks sharper. So the the issue with some of the more complex games, and if you look at, I linked in the news post about this, Tom's hardware had... Uh, like a lot of outlets that cover games, they had pre-release copy of the game of, of the new Metro game. So they were doing side-by-side comparisons like screenshots, DLSS off versus on and showing like the, the reduction overall like image clarity with DLSS enabled, which does seem to suggest that it is a lower resolution image. They, they said it was softer so it's like the opposite. It's like, well, with DLSS on, the image actually looks less sharp. So it's that's supposed to be improving with time, as you know, we just mentioned though, the whole like it gets better at uh, a particular game through training and then it looks better. But even though like we were it was about 50% boost with Port Royal with DLSS versus RTX. Then with Battlefield 5, it's about 40 or up to 40. 
with uh, the new Metro Exodus game, they're only saying up to 30. Yeah. And then if you believe Tom's hardware, they're saying that it actually has degraded image quality. So I think it's going to be kind of like a game by game thing, whether you want to enable it or not, whether you notice it or not. Uh, I know Scott on our staff, he had looked at Port Royal frames and was kind of pointing out some aberrations that he found. It really depends on how much you're scrutinizing it and whether you're looking at it in motion or whether you're looking at screenshots too. So it's going to be, it's hard to analyze this like from static screenshots because some of them are going to look noticeably worse, but it looks surprisingly good considering like, especially in Port Royal where we actually have the numbers from the technical manual it's being rendered anywhere from like 67 to 75% of the output resolution internally and then basically uh, upscaled through DLSS. So, Yeah, there's a tech power-up that I linked to that did uh, the performance analysis for BF5 as DLSS off versus on. And I mean, yeah, you get better performance, but I mean, it, it's up to your own eyes go there and they've got the nice slider thing where you can see back and forth what it looks like and how it changes. I posted it in the chat. Sorry. Uh, There you go. And the nice thing is that these ones actually let you scroll in so you can get a good close up look at it. So I'm not convinced it makes a huge visual quality difference. Although polarized and all. But the fact that it is giving you a boost in performance, you know, that's that's not bad. I like boosts in performance for free. And not every game that uses ray tracing is using it the same way or to the same extent. That was another thing that kind of came out of this when I was researching. Oh, God, yeah. Because Battlefield uses it for reflections. Metro Exodus is going to be using it for global illumination, like actual sunlight how it interacts with objects. Like one of the things they showed was like a room, how the room was illuminated through light coming in, like cracks in the wall and the window that was open and the difference between like ray tracing on versus off was very subtle. You had to actually look at it and you're like, Oh, okay. I can see that. It's like, there's more like defined shadows and things. So it makes more sense if you're like trying to hide in the shadows, I guess. But it's pretty subtle. Like it's the kind of thing where you're looking at a, a freeze frame and then you're having to study it to see the difference. So it's, it's, it's hard to sell this as being like a game changer when it requires this level of scrutiny and there's a performance penalty or a possible visual fidelity penalty associated with it. But it, it looks like it's going to depend on the game and how well trained the system was for that game. Jeremy, switching gears here, let's talk about Enterprise a little bit. Well, as it relates to the internal use of outdated browsers for, you know, web apps. And I will say the last place I worked was still using a very old version of Internet Explorer for their internal web app thing. But well, we still are as well. Um, and to, to be perfectly honest, uh, there are occasions when SharePoint will 
stain the sheets if you're using Edge as opposed to IE 11. Uh, but it it just having followed this for so long, we've gone from antitrust suits uh, where there's no way in hell Microsoft is allowed to make the their web browser integral to their operating system. They have to be separate in some way. And Microsoft with, you know, more money than some countries fighting it tooth and nail to them saying, actually, you know what? If you're still using IE 11 as a compatibility solution, you should stop. It, it is such an absolute reversal from the decades of fighting that have been going on that it, it's just, Utterly amazing. It, it, to say that I was floored when I read this is a bit of an understatement, even after knowing that they're already moving towards Chromium to base their new edge off of. I I just don't know what's going on in this world anymore. But is SharePoint going to work perfectly on Chromium? Like, it what is their alternative work for people? Well, on Chrome right now. Okay. It works okay, but then it has weird intermittent problems. I keep telling people to keep testing it because I know that in the next, in the foreseeable future, I'm going to be supporting a version of edge, which is based on Chromium. And uh, on the plus side, Microsoft probably going to be nicer about it, that they're not going to be like, well, you know, you're using competitors. So we're just going to mess around with you a little bit here. Not, nothing that's uh, not, not enough of a pattern that you can actually trace it back to us, but we'll mess around with you a little bit. And boy, does it hate Firefox, like truly deeply despises Firefox. So it, it just, you know, it, this is going to be a thing. And then even better, to, just to top this off of them, I'm, I'm now jaw halfway to the floor. I'm not supposed to use IE 11 anymore because it's compatible with what you guys told us we had to maintain compatibility for because you want to write your own web standards and, you know, water under the bridge. So Office 2019 that was just released. Yeah, no, you shouldn't buy that. Sorry, you just released a product to the market and are now telling people no. You, you really want to go to our Adobe style uh, yeah. subscription service, which makes you pay us money every month. Which we Companies really like. like that. They like right. that. They like that revenue on the books. Like they can show the shareholders, like, look, we have this many subscribers and this many dollars a month, and it's guaranteed income. Plus, that way people can't pirate it. Well, I mean, yeah, you can because you can have it up onto five machines simultaneously. So you can just share your password out with your friends and sort of pirate it. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of enterprise copies of Office floating around out there on the internet. Oh, God, yeah. So, So, yeah, it's just, it's, as my title said, detector gerbs. I can't make fun of them for this anymore because they're making fun of themselves. Yeah, it, you never thought you'd see the day where Microsoft is like, please don't use Internet Explorer. Like, what? No, it, it's unbelievable. Hmm. Moving along. Uh-huh. I see you have a lot to say about this, Josh. Hey, Josh, you have anything to say about graphics card rumors? Have you seen the latest rumors or the rumor roundup? I think, Jeremy, you posted this, right? Mm-hmm. He, he probably is better for it. I mean... <clears throat> So RTX is an interesting thing because it adds two big components to it. 
you know, the ray tracing and the machine learning. But what if you were to take those components away and just have more of a GeForce GTX type thing? Well, that would be the GTX 1660. It's a oddly named card, but essentially it has the machine learning and uh, ray tracing disabled. In RTX, theory. Uh, RTX off, if you will, Josh. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, if you look at my forehead, you'll see that RTX is always on. And if you look at the back of my head, it's it's going away. Doesn't make any sense. But anyway, <clears throat> your brighter company. They, they have they they've got to have plenty of reusable dyes that work perfectly fine. Or they have dyes that do not exactly meet the thermal characteristics without parts of it being disabled. And suddenly we have the GTX 1660Ti, which is a fast card. I mean, we're talking 1060Ti, 1070Ti type performance uh, that is a, you know, kind of recovered RTX what is it? Uh, 104, 106? Not RTX, but but uh, T Touring 106 dies. You're not helping me out here, guys. Anyway, no, sorry, <clears throat> I was typing at the crowd. <laughs> oh, sure you were. But anyway, you know, it's it's uh, you know RTX in terms of just throughput, it is very efficient. If if you totally ignore machine learning and RTX stuff, the performance per watt is is really kind of impressive. It's it's a good jump up from the previous you know ten series, and uh, so you know they're they're getting these dies. They're they're making something that uh, works well. It's going to be probably less than $300, if only like $1. So, but you can see where this is going to fit in. And NVIDIA is making a little bit more money from these recovered die. How many of which we don't know because they probably to fulfill demand or are going to disable perfectly fine RTX cores to do this. But, you know, it's... Which it's an interesting. Uh, right, and the modders are going to love that if they can figure out which lines that happens on. No, they're they're, they're this is going to be physical. Um, oh yeah, you're, well, fuses being right. burned, and you're you're not going to be able to. At least we right. hope so. Yeah. or not. Okay. We'll uh, get the uh, pencil out again, like we used to in the old days. If only. Yeah, uh, but I mean, this is going to be what everyone was screaming about when the 2060 came out 2060 is too expensive it's not a mid-range card what in the hell are you doing i have a feeling this is going to sit where you know you people expected the 2060 to sit as far as pricing goes you, you save a bit of money because you're not getting some of the special effects that you are with the rtx but at the same time you're getting what looks like a bump from the old 1060 is it going to be worth upgrading if you've got a 1060? Yeah, maybe not. But especially with the, the lack of the RTX and stuff. But it 
if you're two generations back, this might be a more attractive one. And yeah, I hate to say it, but AMD doesn't have anything sitting in that price point to compare. That's a good point. That's that's the thing where when around CES time when they were granting interviews, when Lisa Sue and uh, Mark Papermaster were talking to the press, and there was, I think it was Papermaster who s- said that yes, we are refreshing the entire lineup this year. My question is: Is this all going to be like second generation Vega based refresh, or are we actually going to be refreshing, uh, like the R- RX series cards again? Will we go from five hundred to six hundred and just have like? I I have no idea if they would be moving those to seven nanometer. I feel like seven nanometer is pretty limited space currently. I don't think they're doing large scale production. If the supply of Radeon Seven is any indication of that so far, plus they have you know some CPUs to release this year at seven nanometer. So TSMC is the only player in that space. Am I completely off base here, Josh? Like they're going to run into a problem if they're trying to ramp up CPU production, and they're producing these Radeon Seven cards. They're just at seven nanometer. How large scale do you think the production is so far? You know, I th- I think Navi, their issues are more in design rather than production. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, TSMC, they're they they're booked with seven nanometer. Whether they're it's the, you know it's it's their lower performance versus their higher performance stuff, they're they are booked. But yeah, I, I think with Navi, it's it's more of a design issue. Uh, Vega, the Vega twenty, the seven nanometer part. I think their issue with that is the production of the entire module. Um, because you've you've got a big interposer, you've got four stacks of HBM2 memory, which is still not inexpensive. And uh, when you put all that together, I mean, Vega Seven is, you know, it's an enterprise version card that they're selling for eight hundred bucks. Yeah, and it's just. You know, I, I don't think it's it's so much the seven nanometer production that's holding them back. I think it's the overall product. I mean, that is a lot of money in terms of just HBM, which still is not mass produced. You got an interposer, which throws another wrench into things when it comes to you know actually building a part that you've got to space everything nicely you've got a big piece of silicone that um silicone silicon that uh, you still have to etch and, and do all these things to i mean it's 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 expensive and it's not mass market yet as we have seen for the past four years since what fury was released three years uh-huh. it's almost four In between there yeah almost yeah. Four, yeah 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 it's 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 nuts. I, I wish that I had a better answer. I wish that I had better news for people, but it looks like Navi, which relies on regular GDDR6, from what we hear about, the design is the issue, not the fabrication on, on 7 nanometer. I could be wrong. Well, TSMC is looking forward to this because they're, they're kicking off that huge uh, bump up in March. 
Yeah, but EUV is is different process for them. Well, EUV. I think the best way to describe EUV is that it's an improvement in efficiency and that you don't have as many litho stages. True. But you're not going to gain really any performance from the actual materials and the way they deposit and the, the metals and and all that stuff. I mean, no, absolutely. No, I'm thinking is- more volume. Uh, like the ability to produce chips at a volume. Um, yeah, no, because you can only shove so many wafers through an EUV machine. Versus, <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, the, these things are, are insane. I mean, they, how much do they eat? It's like five, five megawatts for an EUV machine. I mean, it's, 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 it's a ludicrous amount of power. I think I'm overstating it, but it's still a large, large number of electrons passing through this yes. this device. So is, is Sebastian back? Yeah. Back. He's yeah. back. Oh, I'm so happy. It looked, uh, it looked Look like who's back. consumed by the, but, the internet. Yeah, but anyway, I mean I, I think I think the Vega problem is is the package costs the amount of money it costs to get the HBM2 and getting it all together in a working module it's a lot harder than we had originally thought some four or five years ago when we first heard about interposers, HBM memory, all this stuff. When we called it PFM. Pure freaking magic. Yeah, it, it pretty much is. It really is. Uh, well, real real quick yeah. on the uh, 1660 again. If Assuming that name is true, and I think we've seen enough leaks now, we can assume it is. What do I you don't guys know. Think? Are you allowed to say anything about it? I don't know anything about it. Okay. Um, the what do you guys think about the name? Sixteen sixty. Why sixteen sixty? Ti. Is there any indication or any thoughts on that? Well, or the two just... stands for RTX. I'm sorry. The the two stands for an RTX card. The two. Yeah. Like so it's not a twenty six sixty. Yeah, like, why, why didn't they call this the 1160? Well, right, that's what I'm getting at. Is it's why, yeah. why 1660? It doesn't make much sense. No. Yeah, I'm not saying they should have used a two. I'm just saying, like, why go from 10 series to 16 series or six if, if it is going to be a series? It's 10% better, roughly, pretty much. Well, oh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> 11 is too small, 19 is too big. Yeah, let's go for 16. Okay, cool. That that name, like the first leaks that we first were seeing, what was it? It's been weeks now of yeah. seeing all these different. No, when I first saw that name, I thought it was a joke. It's it's puzzling. I would love it if they went back to adding like the the model after the series. So like the eighty eight hundred GT GTS GTX. There could have been a 2060 RTX and a 2060 GTX, and you'd know to, you'd buy the RTX to be a little bit more, and you'd have the ability to run the DLSS and ray tracing stuff. And with the GTX, you'd save money, but you'd lose out on that, and you could decide for yourself if it was worth the extra money. So instead, we're going to have what looks like anyway a a completely different naming scheme. If this is true, 
but I guess that makes sense because that way it would be easier to differentiate them if you were shopping. If you see one 20 series card versus another, but who knows? Um, I think that's all we had. Uh, we've gone on quite a, a while on oh, the week where Lord. we talked about drivers quite a bit. Do do anybody have do, do anybody does anyone have a pick of the week? Yeah, Josh, Josh do you have a pick? Who who else has a pick? I forgot one. Jeremy uh, does, but yeah. he's he's before me. Yeah. All right, it's simply the reason that three D printers exist. Because who literally could live their life without a palm-sized Gatling elastic gun? If you scroll down, there's a video. It is just truly <laughs> ridiculously silly. This video is titled and Looming it's Terror. Like braces <laughs> elastics. It's, it's the tiny elastics for braces and that. Oh, my God. Come on. <laughs> it's motorized. Man, it doesn't look that powerful. It's having a hard time knocking oh, over those no, plastic but... cups. Nice. That means I was say, that, that could be very bad. painful, but what it was doing, those plastic cups did not look painful. <laughs> Dude, shoot your eye out, kid. Well, that's the thing. You, you can't. Eh, you could probably do some damage with a rubber band straight to the cornea. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, you're all natural 20, but uh, honestly, and, and I mean, it holds a lot of elastic. So if someone's bugging you at your desk, you just start firing at them, and HR can't really complain that much because you're not hurting them. <laughs> it's it a great like pick. A <laughs> All right, we're on to me. One terabyte drives for under 150 bucks, and they're fast. Yeah, it's sad. It's not NVMe, but I don't care. It's one terabyte. Well, that's my cold storage now. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. I remember back in uh, 10 gigabyte drives, I thought they were big. Diamond Max. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, Max Store. Uh, Max Store. Big. And point. they had one of the first, you know, really affordable ones now, Samsung. They're probably going to be along, uh, around a lot longer than, than Max Store. But yeah, you think? the 860 Evo is a quick drive for what you get. One terabyte for under a hundred and fifty bucks. It's good stuff. That is a great deal. But are we? Are we? No. Let me see here. That's how much is that per gigabyte? No, it's not it's ten not. cents. No, fourteen point seven nine nine cents per gigabyte. You are yeah. more or less correct on that math. Yeah, yeah. That is not ten cents per gigabyte, Josh. I don't care. It's still good for this point in time. And Ryan's Law don't stand around here no more. Whose law? Got what? left town. Well, i got to say, I've been having Police Quest nightmares since we started this podcast. Thank you, Jim. Oh, back that there. Took yeah. a long time to beat. It was worth it, though. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I also have a copy here of Dvorak Teaches Typing. Oh, I don't know if you can John see it over there. Dvorak. It is. It is completely unrelated to the Dvorak keyboard layout. John yes. C. Dvorak teaches typing. It's like from 1994. So if you want to learn typing and get yelled at by an asshole, I mean, a lovable asshole, but an asshole. <laughs> what about Mavis out. Beacon? Well, but Mavis Beacon <laughs> isn't a real person. 
Yeah. She's not? No. Did you see the LGR video expose on that, John? Yeah. No, I did not. She was a model who was hired to just be like to pose for the cover of a game. Wow. Not really Mavis. Mavis, my my first love back in the early 90s. I mean, you could probably still hook up with her if you uh, tried hard. uh, Maybe not. Jim, did you have a pick this week or no? I know you were a latecomer. I I didn't. I'll pick since I had dinner with Tim Robbins tonight. Well, I had dinner in the same restaurant that Tim Robbins was in, so I'm going to say I had dinner with Tim Robbins. I recommend let me near him, but (laughs) I'm going to recommend uh, Top Gun because everyone thinks of Merlin from Top Gun when you think of Tim Roberts or Tim Robbins. Equal coming out. Yeah, Mavericks, uh, the movie Maverick, the sequel. I don't know. It could be a disaster, but. That's uh, in production now. I think it's coming out later this year. Maybe next year. Sounds like a highway to the danger zone to me. Mm. Mm. Are they going to get Loggins back for the soundtrack, do you think? He's still with us? I yeah. mean, is, is he going to be able to get well, We the... lost so many musicians over the last couple of years. I'm not sure he's actually still with us. Actually, yeah, that's true. He, he owns a travel agency with Eddie Rabbit. Perfect. <laughs> They got two tickets to the danger zone. Yep. <laughs> uh, Kenny Loggins is alive and well, age 71. Okay. Hey, actually, you know what? Interesting that you uh, picked Top Gun, uh, Jim, because I'm going to pick Top Secret. Here's the connection. Val Kilmer's first movie was, and his a, best. was a ridiculous... Uh, spoof of spy thriller movies. He's oh. never done a better movie after that. Oh, no, it's top great! Secret. I watched it for the first it's time last week, and it was top secret. How was it the first time you've watched it? I had never even heard of it. Bloody oh, hell! Man. The yeah, the one where my wife's friends came over. I mean, the guy who gets it. crushed in the car. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's the funniest part in the entire film. Sadly, it's not like streaming on anything unless you pay oh. for it like it's yeah. not on netflix it's not on amazon prime video gunfight was pretty up there josh i don't know when we he comes walking through the door after he gets crushed that's that's yeah it was very police squad yeah he does like two like he does like a 720 and then just falls over and well and yeah we, we don't want to give anything away no, if you have not seen it because it's it's fantastic it's the funniest part of the entire it, film watch it find, find it on youtube or find it on the internet somewhere or rent it i rented it for like three dollars to watch what, it blockbuster no like uh it was either amazon or itunes okay. i think i rented it from itunes but it was hilarious so i'll yeah. have to look for the dvd sure my son will appreciate it in a year or two mm. i mean God, when did that come out 80s 84 80 yeah. yeah i was gonna say 83 84 and it, it still lasts to this day one of my favorite parts the, the pinto the, <laughs> was good. and i got that joke actually my mom yeah, to get that joke for about five years thankfully we were never rear-ended the cow from the cover like if you the imdb page yeah. the cow in like rubber boots i don't know why it was just like because it was a real cow i'm pretty sure it was not like a animatronic it's just like walking around while they're doing like the voiceovers just because it's like supposed to be two men in a suit they just used a real cow instead and put boots on it and 
it, the cow seemed very uncomfortable and was like trying to figure out how to walk. It's ridiculous. Like it's it's a kind of a it, it's like one of the movies you'd expect from like Leslie Nielsen from that era. It's very very yeah, silly. Yeah, it's, it's it's airplane. It's the yeah. Actually, yeah, isn't it the same Zucker director? The same it was Zuckers. the director who did uh, oh, yeah. like the scary movie series, right? It's the Sucker Brothers, Jerry and yeah, okay, yeah, 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 Jerry and another brother. It's, yeah. it's worth watching just for the opening musical sequence, which is a parody of a Beach Boys song. But I will not, I will not spoil <laughs> it for you. Anyway, all right. So nobody has anything else. This closes Thank out you. another week of the PC Perspective podcast. You can visit us at pcper.com. You can follow Josh on Twitter. Uh, if Josh D. To, Walworth. Yeah, don't forget the D. Josh. D. D. Well, not as important as Ken's D, but no. Oh. Anyway, uh, Jim, do you have anything else? No, I got nothing. You got nothing. Except, you know, you had dinner with Tim Robbins. And, you know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Highlight oh. of my life. We Being will see you guys. Almost sharing your role with uh, Elvis Costello. I mean, we've all had our encounters. I haven't. Not that there's time know. yet. No, that's true. All right. Well, hey, I, I I grew up with Dick Cheney. True. He was like a neighbor of yours. Uh my my dad worked on his reelection campaigns, and so he'd often oh, come yeah. to our house when he was just a Wyoming rep. Yeah. He's a nice guy. Okay. He may shoot his lawyer friends, but he's a nice guy. <laughs> shoot him in the, lawyer. In the face. <laughs> shoot him in the face. Not just shoot him. We we all know the first step with the lawyers. I mean, yeah. I can't disagree with that decision. No. So if there is nothing else, uh, I will put a cap on this one. This is this was the PC Perspective podcast, and we will see you all next week.